0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. What an honor for me to talk about the dogs who do this amazing therapy work, which we did last week. I love talking about that and writing about that too. By the way, you can check out my website, and that is stevedale.tv. Another thing I enjoy talking about, enjoy isn't quite the right word because it's not a fun thing to talk about, but it's important, and that is heart disease. ...in dogs and cats. It actually occurs far more often than most of you might otherwise think. Unless you've had a pet with heart disease, then you totally know what I'm talking about. There are no instant answers, but we do have some answers, and we'll be talking to a veterinary cardiologist. Dr. Kelly St. Denis is a past president of the American Association of Feline Practitioners... ...and also co-editor of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. You're busy...
1: I have been very busy, Steve. Yes, I have.
0: <laughs> oh, you know what? We weren't, I need to talk about this. We, but I need to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because you are, along with colleagues on the board of directors of the American Association of Feline Practitioners, you helped say enough is enough, no more decline. No
1: more decline. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'm certainly happy to have been a part of that change. Yeah. Why,
0: why did you feel so strongly about it?
1: Well, to be honest, I've been a veterinarian for over 20 years, and in my early career, I did perform declaws, and I started to really witness the negative effects that it was having on cats personally, never mind that we are starting to have a lot of publications, scientific literature showing us it has a lot of negative impact. Uh, And so, it really, I kind of turned around from being someone who would perform the surgery to really trying to work with veterinarians and caregivers to live with clawed cats because it's really natural for them and they really won't wreck your furniture if you if you go about it the right way so can
0: you teach cats or kittens if you are lucky enough to get a kitten or get a cat at a young age but can you train cats to scratch in all the quote-unquote right places
1: yes absolutely i do believe you can i think one of the things that we forget about when we think about cats, they're territorial, and so part of their scratching behavior is marking. And if we don't provide them with options to scratch and mark on in the home, especially in areas where people might be coming in or they can see other animals outside, they're going to use our furniture. And so what I usually recommend to caregivers is that they provide lots of options. So they have scratch posts in front of the windows, but they also have scratch pads and different types of substrates or surfaces that the cat can scratch throughout the home and just really make it a part of the decor it really has to be and I know with my own cat I have a kitten that's a year and a half uh, and I haven't lived with a lot of declawed cats or clawed cats in my life because we always declawed our cats when I was young and it's been really neat to see how by providing her with all of those options she doesn't touch the furniture she has other things that she can scratch
0: yeah same here as you know we have a cat that's about a year old Mm -hmm. Uh, We've never had a declawed cat, so I have nothing to compare it Mm -hmm. to, as you do. But uh, same thing. Uh, Croucho has not scratched the furniture. Interesting thing. Sometimes when he wants something, he'll reach up on me... And scratch me Or the pants that I happen to be wearing But he's not really scratching He's just, just getting my attention Yeah, more yes, he's else. not
1: putting his claws out Yeah, yeah. well,
0: a little bit yeah.
1: But oh. not, not
0: with any intent to <laughs> yeah. do anything You know, because cats scratch for a reason So you mentioned one of that One of those reasons It's territory, but there are other reasons Why cats that are even declawed Still go through those motions
1: Sure, yeah, I mean, part of that is the marking And with when they have claws They're leaving a visual mark But they're also secreting pheromones. That are marking the area with even a, when they don't with have a scent claws, exactly they're, even they're when, leaving yeah. those pheromones. So we still have a declawed cat living in our home from when I used to declaw mm-hmm. cats. Yeah, um, and she still goes around and rubs everything uh, with her paws, even though she doesn't have claws. So she's still doing that marking. But they're also stretching, so we know they're stretching, uh, and they're also trying to shed when they do have claws. The caps on the claws because they do actually cycle those claws to get sharp. They have to shed the outer outer layer, as mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so to do that, to have those sharp claws for hunting, they've got to scratch somewhere.
0: Yeah. Uh, so thank you again for the American Association of Feline Practitioners standing up and saying, if you want to be a cat-friendly practice, which is what the American Association of Feline Practitioners supports, yes. you can't declaw. It doesn't make any sense doesn't to be Doesn't make both. any sense.
1: That's and, right.
0: And thank you for that. Uh, the American Association of Feline Practitioners, I mentioned Cat-Friendly Practices. Yes. What are those?
1: So Cat-Friendly Practice is a veterinary clinic or veterinary practice that has gone through a list of criteria. It's uh, itself; uh, they're basically doing it on their own through a list that we provide through the AFP. That really uh, shows how to have a practice that should reduce the cat's fear and anxiety. And it also is about how the medicine is practiced, what kind of anesthesia we use, dental x-rays, a lot of different self-checklists that they have to go through to get that certification.
0: But all these things actually begin at home.
1: They do begin at home, yeah. The veterinary visit starts at home, that's what I always say. So really, if well our put, cats are yeah. not comfortable getting into the carrier and traveling to the clinic, then by the time they get to the clinic, their stress levels are so high that when the doctor even sees them, it's they're really behind the eight ball, as you would say. Yeah. Could yeah. You,
0: so let's say you have a cat that's... And these cats, oh gosh, we've had all these terms for these cats like fractious and mean. Mm-hmm. And, Unfortunately. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but... As you kind of mentioned these cats are just terrified. They are
1: terrified. Yeah.
0: So so is there a way to prevent that let's say let's start young. Let's say you do have a kitten. What can you do as a kitten parent to
1: mm-hmm. prevent
0: this from happening as the cat gets older?
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of things we can do with our kittens, and we just want to think about the steps that we usually go through to take them to the veterinarian, which is going to be including getting the carrier ready, getting them into the carrier, getting them into the vehicle, and starting to have those things the carrier and riding in the car as regular things that the kitten does, not just when they go to the veterinarian, but also making that carrier a safe space for the cat rather than a place that they're afraid of. So if it's put away in a closet when you're not going to the vet, kittens are not going to know what it is. It should be in the environment all the time. Again, just like the scratch pads, it should be part of the furniture, and it should be there for the kitten or cat to go into and sleep in, or hang out in, whatever they like to do. They should be comfortable going in and out of it regularly.
0: Have you ever seen a kitten that is not cute?
1: No. <laughs> no, I haven't. That's that's an easy question.
0: <laughs> Alright, so you, I, I'm a proponent of, of what I call happy kitten visits. Mm-hmm. So the kitten... And we're talking younger kittens Goes to the veterinary clinic Doesn't have any prior negative experience So this kitten has no reason to feel Oh no, I think I am going to die It's just somewhere to go In a box that we call a carrier Mm -hmm. It's weird, the car ride part But then when I get there I get all these treats Including the best treats in the world And Every veterinary professional, even those who have seen kittens and do see kittens, every single day tell you you've got the cutest kitten I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So at the veterinarian, we should be definitely providing a lot of different positive options for that kitten, especially in those first visits. Those are really going to be pinnacle. And I say visit
0: without any veterinary exam. Just have, for clients who will do it, just have them come in, you maybe pop out or a technician that kitten really is cute have someone feed the kitten
1: yeah and then they go home and then they go home so nothing negative has happened that day yeah we really do have and then when they are there for their visits we really do need to limit how much we do if we notice that the kitten is getting a little bit um, uncooperative or not wanting to do what we want them to do because then if we force them that's going to become a negative experience for them and the next visit's not going to go well. as veterinarians, we we need to kind of be careful that way, too.
0: And we touched on getting the carrier out in the first place. So when we come back, I want to talk about, all right, how to take a cat that is currently fearful of the carrier. Maybe you adopted a 5- or 6- or 7-year-old cat Mm -hmm. who also has had negative experiences with the carrier. It's okay. That can be changed. We can change it. She can change it. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Kelly St. Denis will talk about how to do that. When we come back on WGN, Dr. Kelly St. Denis, a feline veterinarian practicing in Canada.
1: In Canada. In In? northern Ontario, Canada.
0: Northern Ontario, (laughs) Canada. Where there's lots of
1: snow and ice.
0: (laughs) Yes. And you live out way out in the country.
1: I do. Way out in the country. Way out in the country.
0: Do you ever see stray cats?
1: Yes. We had one in the fall that started coming around, and we uh, fed her until I could uh, get her to eat in the carrier, and we got her to a rescue, and she was recently adopted, actually, last Yay. week. So Very nice. Yeah, so we do see a lot of people do, unfortunately, dump cats hmm. that they don't want uh, in the country. So there's yeah, quite the a few thing. in the area. Yeah,
0: the, We don't see that as often with dogs, right? No. People just don't let out. if the, If the dog does something we don't like... Sadly, the dog goes, but happily, in mm-hmm. a sense, to animal control or an animal shelter. Yeah. With cats, sometimes people just say, get out of here. It's
1: extremely sad. It's terrible. It's extremely sad. But,
0: you know, I think that's changed a lot because the value of cats, mm-hmm. uh, just in the past X number of years and, you know, past 10 years or so, yep. has really changed.
1: They're much more popular pet. Yep. More people like them. And more valued. Yep. They're taking over the world.
0: She says with a smile on her face. Okay, so we mentioned carrier. So for a cat that has even a previous negative experience with carriers, Mm -hmm. the carrier comes out and the cat is, oh, no, and runs for the hills or dives under the bed or whatever, those cats can be trained to actually accept a carrier.
1: Over time, yes, depending on how negative of an experience that they've had and how traumatized they are by the carrier. Uh, We can certainly work towards what we call cooperative training or cooperative care training to get that cat back into a carrier.
0: Should you begin with an all-new carrier that looks different so it's not the same thing for starters? It's
1: probably a very good idea, and it's probably a good idea to get one that opens up, the lid comes off, and it can come apart without a door. So, that we can at least start having it in the environment, not even really looking much like a carrier, but maybe just a base.
0: Kind of like a box.
1: Yeah, just like a box. And we know
0: cats love boxes. Mm -hmm. And then, how do you get the cat to accept it?
1: So, just looking at some of the cooperative care training that I there's some really good videos by ICAT Care on YouTube with Dr. Sarah Ellis, who's a behaviorist, and she really just starts with a mat on the floor and has nothing to do with the carrier. So, we're working to train that cat to take a treat or a reward, petting, whatever it is, on a mat so that the cat learns to go on the mat on command, and then we can. Gradually move that mat into the carrier, into the bottom of the carrier with no lid, mm-hmm. uh, and then try to work to get the cat into the bottom of the carrier. And it's a very gradual process, but we can use cooperative care training to get them retrained and more comfortable again.
0: Treats are a part of this?
1: Treats. Food is a very good part. A, a lot of cats are very food-motivated, um, and I always encourage caregivers to reserve the really good, powerful treats for those things and not, you know, those liquid treats or temptations that cats like. Not just hand those to the cat without any sort of work for them. We want to use those really powerful treats only when we're working on, say, our cooperative care training for the carrier.
0: All right. So the cat, and by cooperative care, you've used that term a couple of times. Mm-hmm. What do you mean?
1: It means that we're working with the cat instead of working uh, just to get the cat to do what we want it. So, you know, traditionally when we're going to the veterinarian, we get the carrier out and we grab the cat whether they're having a nap or whatever they're doing and, and push them into the carrier. And what we really want to do is work with the cat so that we can get the cat's consent to actually be willingly going into that carrier with us instead of working against us. A
0: cat consent A
1: to cat anything? consent, yes.
0: That can happen.
1: It can happen. Absolutely. Alright,
0: so we've got the cat to consent to go inside the carrier Mm -hmm. now what
1: so if we're talking about the cat that we're still trying to train that's been traumatized we're obviously not going to want to then take them right to the veterinarian we will close the door and open the door and give them a reward and gradually increase the time that the door is closed and At some point, we might start even carrying them around um, the room and then let them out and reward them again. Mm -hmm. So uh, just really very gradual process over time to get them accustomed to being in the carrier, door closed, moving around, and eventually we graduate to the car.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. How do you do that?
1: Well, once we've got them comfortable being in the carrier, walking around the house, we can take them to the car. But we want to make sure that car is a comfortable space for the cat. So if it's cold outside or if it's a warm summer day, we want to acclimatize that car before we put the cat in there. So it's got to be a nice ambient temperature. And we don't want loud music playing. Cats uh, do better without music at all. Uh, if you're going to choose music and you want to listen to music, low classical music might be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or we actually do have cat music that we can use that's been generated with certain frequencies. Um, and that's also got purr sounds and pulses that resemble the pulse rate of kittens when they're nursing. So it's, it's very calming for cats.
0: That's and not, that will yeah. help. The cat music you're talking about Isn't Samantha Martin's group, is it? She actually travels all over America In a van And it's really cool With cats that perform Oh, And they're musicians And they perform in a band and I had him in the studio a couple a couple of different times, actually. i have to check so, this out. <laughs> yeah. So one's on drums, and the other's not really blowing into a saxophone. I'm not quite sure how that works. Another is on the xylophone and going... That is
1: very and neat. And another
0: plays the piano.
1: Yeah. That's and, not the kind of cat music I was no, talking about, but that no. sounds like a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> All right. So now you've played the cat music you're talking about. You get to the veterinary clinic, hopefully looking for a cat-friendly practice, which I think is ideal. Why? Yes.
1: Yeah, so these cat-friendly practices we talked about earlier that will have gone through all these checklists will have a space that's safest for your cat when you come into the clinic. So it should hopefully be free of dogs, dog noises, dog smells. There shouldn't really be any other cats looking at your cat or in the vicinity of your cat. They should have a space for you to put your cat's carrier elevated off the floor. And ideally, if it's possible, you just get escorted right into a consultation room where you're away from all the noise of the reception, and any dogs or cats that might be out there
0: you know sometimes you can use a little bit of help that's not a bad thing yeah. such as a pheromone product that uh, may lower that even mid-level or low level anxiety mm-hmm. or um a nutraceutical product like zilkine, zilkine. which is a hydrolyzed milk Pro- milk cats like that yeah. milk protein yeah so that is another option as grandma said you know Little cup of warm milk relaxes you. Absolutely. Same (laughs) kind of idea. Same kind of idea. You know, or if the cat is really upset and these things aren't moving along fast enough for you, a veterinarian can prescribe uh, something that is a bit more significant that can help relax the cat
1: absolutely so we have a lot of studies now to show this the medication called gabapentin that can be given to our cats about two hours before we leave for the veterinarian that acts as what we call an anxiolytic so it takes it, it takes that cat's anxiety down somewhat and we still want to use cat friendly principles and cooperative care training to get that cat moving and into the into the veterinary clinic it certainly doesn't take away from the need for that, but it helps a lot for those cats that are really fearful and anxious. Yeah,
0: it can help to make it happen. You've made it happen for a long time for cats. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Kelly St. Denis, past president, American Association of Feline Practitioners. I know you can learn more at catfriendly.com. Dr. Kelly St. Denis, thank
1: you so much. Thank you so much, Steve.
0: So according to the American Kennel Club registrations, French Bulldogs are now the number one breed in America. And I wrote about it in my blog. They took over after 23 years. Labradors held, Labrador Retrievers held that number one position. And I wrote that they're wonderful dogs, but be careful where you get your French Bulldog from. And I criticized the American Kennel Club in a blog post because... We fight the sales of dogs and cats at pet stores. We don't want to see that and actually want to see it banned, as it is in Chicago, as it is in Illinois, because they come from puppy mills. And so many French bulldogs come from pet stores. Really expensive French bulldogs. And Deborah Hamilton, who's an attorney, said, Steve, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about the AKC. You're wrong about how they are sold And you're wrong about the AKC fighting those laws you support. So we'll talk about that. It ought to be interesting next week. Dr. Brian Scanson is a professor of cardiology at Colorado State University, College of Veterinary Medicine. I don't know. Do we start with cats? Do we start with dogs? Heart disease occurs in both dogs and cats, Dr. Scanson, but it can look incredibly different in a dog compared to
2: a cat. That's right. And even the specific conditions we see in each are much different. In, in the dog, we tend to see valve problems. In the cat, we tend to see heart and muscle problems.
0: And the explanations for those reasons might be different as well, right? As to whether genetics is a part of it or what part of it it
2: is. And treatment, too. That's right. Uh, probably both genetics and uh, various risk factors play a role in both. But there's no doubt that we have better understanding of the genetics in some breeds of cat. And we know that some breeds of dog are also clearly predisposed to their issues. Okay, so we'll get to Dobermans later and we'll
0: get to Cavalier King Charles Spaniels for their issues. I want to talk about cats. Okay. Feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, Incredibly common.
2: Yeah, it's estimated, unfortunately, that about 15% of cats suffer from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, otherwise known as HCM. Now, think about that.
0: 15% of all cats. That's millions of cats. It is
2: literally millions in this country and as well as across the globe, unfortunately.
0: And if we're talking about cats, we're also talking about animals that may be indoors and outdoors. And we'll get to what some of the signs of this disease are. But one is sudden death. So that cat who do doesn't come back—I've said for a long time—it's conceivable that that cat was hit by a car. It's conceivable some nice person took in your lovely cat. It's also conceivable that this do- cat rather just died of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy.
2: Unfortunately, that is true, and and we recognize that many cats, unfortunately. The first sign of this disease, in fact, can be a sudden event. Yeah. Uh, And the other signs aren't necessarily good
0: things either. (laughs) And we'll talk about what they are. But is there any warning sign that is... uh, So here's what... I'm trying to put some subtle, because cats can be very subtle, right? Yes. So a cat that is panting. That doesn't happen a lot because cats don't run around to the extent dogs do. Or is there some other sign that can get you to the veterinarian because you don't have a stethoscope at home to listen to your cat's heart, short of these more severe signs that we'll talk about in a second?
2: Uh, Yes, I think a couple things that that are worth keeping in mind. You're right. Cats don't tend to open-mouth breathe uh, or pant in the way that dogs do. But sometimes they can start to have an increased effort with their breathing. And I've had many clients or pet parents who were able to pick up on some of those changes before more severe signs developed. Which would be
0: huge. Yes. Because it's the more severe signs that you most often see, I presume. So we talked about one of them, and that's sudden death. Can't do much about that. But the other two aren't so
2: great either. No, the the most common issue we see is congestive heart failure. And how that looks to the pet parent is typically a cat that is struggling to breathe. That might include breathing with an open mouth, but even just very shallow, rapid breathing can be a sign of fluid developing in the lungs or around the lungs. And the other... The other major sign we see is arterial thrombus formation, meaning a blood clot forms in the heart, and it dislodges and goes to the legs. And the event is sort of like a stroke-like event in the effect of it, isn't it? It is, in that it is usually a very acute or sudden onset of blockage, and therefore the legs all of a sudden don't have blood flow, The cat is unfortunately extremely painful as a consequence, and most often what the pet parent sees is the cat is suddenly unable to walk.
0: Now, the good news of sorts is that if you are able to rush the cat to the veterinary clinic, the condition can be reversed, but you're not out of the clear because it's going to happen again and again and again. And at some point, according to a study that I've read, uh, people just... The cat gives up and the cat succumbs, or the people give up financially because they're continuing, or their heart just breaking so much because their cat is in so much pain and they finally say, you know what, this time around we're just going to euthanize the cat because they're told and they've seen that it's going to happen again and again.
2: That's right. Unfortunately, the prognosis is is poor and we see all the scenarios you described Play out. Sometimes it's just too much at the first event, and the family doesn't feel comfortable putting the cat through treatment, which I can understand. And sometimes we get them through treatment successfully, but then we're still dealing with what is often fairly advanced heart disease, and then the risk for future complications from that. So it is a difficult disease to manage, no doubt. So, prevention? There's some things we can do to prevent the blood clot formation. Once we know that the cat is at risk, we have blood thinners and medications similar to what are used in people to try and prevent it. But it won't be 100% preventative, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So if if the cat has this, and by the way, so here's what happens. You go to the veterinarian. Your veterinarian may hear a murmur or an irregular heartbeat in some way and then you have an ultrasound done. Is that indeed the gold standard test?
2: That remains the gold standard to diagnose this because really with HCM, we're talking about abnormal thickening of the muscle of the heart. So we need to be able to see that muscle, and that requires some type of imaging. The best test right now is cardiac ultrasound or an echocardiogram.
0: All right, so that's done. And uh, then what? Even if the cat has no signs at that point in time and no one told the cat, you know what? You've got HCM. The cat doesn't know it. The quality of life at that point in time is just fine for yes. the cat. There's, there are absolutely no signs. cat's feeling great. Yep. Uh, are there things that you should do proactively at that point in time?
2: It depends a bit on what else we're seeing in the heart. Sometimes there can be abnormal blood flow that may benefit from an additional medication, a beta blocker, just like people take. Um, and certainly the blood thinning medications are necessary in some of those cases to prevent the risk of the clot formation. But for for most cats, it's exactly as you said, they don't know about it, and that's a good thing. And so what we need to do is just monitor and keep an eye on things with your veterinarian to try and prevent those catastrophic consequences. So we talked about all the bad
0: things. There are cats diagnosed with uh, feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM, that do live out a perfectly normal life. And ultimately, at the
2: age of 22, uh, kidney disease gets them or something absolutely unrelated. I agree. And I, I think that should be seen as, as the positive in all of this. I agree with you. Uh, it's estimated that of cats with HCM, about 25% will have one of these catastrophic side effects. And that's terrible but on the flip side many of these cats can live a normal life even with this disease yeah and that is the good
0: news and by the way you can learn more about how you can help uh, through everycat.org I began years ago the Ricky Fund and you can learn more at that website about it as we raise money to help people like you to learn more about HCM and cats But it's not only cats, it's dogs who can have heart disease. And I want to talk about those best friends with four legs when we come back. Dr. Brian Skansen is a professor of cardiology at Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Would you agree that pet parents today want to know more and, in fact, do know more about their pet's health than ever before?
2: I would uh, 100% agree. I think pet parents today are both better educated and more desiring of education about what's going on with their furry family members than ever before.
0: Do you say that an increasing number, if not most people, who go out and get a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel today, or for different reasons, a Doberman Pinscher, or certain other breeds are aware of what they're getting into potentially and ask breeders all the right questions.
2: We see more and more that they are. Uh, There's definitely still more education that could be out there to improve uh, the general public's understanding of what types of diseases of the heart dogs can get. But to your point, yes, I'd say more than ever before when... One of those breeds comes to see me in my practice. The client, the the pet parent, is almost always aware of the risk in their breed. Okay. Why did I mention those two breeds? (laughs) Let's talk about Cavalier King Charles Spaniels first. Of course. So Cavaliers are unfortunately the breed that is most well-known for developing degenerative mitral valve disease, a disease of one of the valves of the heart that results in a backup or a leakage of blood that can eventually cause fluid in the lungs and congestive heart failure. And at one point
0: in time, these dogs were dying left and right at the age of three, four, or five. Uh, it's not as much like that anymore at all because veterinary medicine can do more, and because breeders have not eliminated the problem but
2: decreased the problem. Am I, am I right? Am I right about both those things? Yeah, I think there's truth in both of those statements. We certainly have better uh, treatment options today than we, we did even a decade ago. And as breeders have become more and more aware of the prevalence of this disease and have tried to select and breed animals without, or at least with much less severe forms of the disease, that all is beneficial to try and limit complications and the prevalence of this condition.
0: So we were talking about uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM in cats Uh, a good percent of cats just survive absolutely fine but those who develop signs which is also a good percent uh, there's uh, unfortunately I'm stumbling a bit but I was going to say there just isn't much hope except maybe prolonging life a bit is it the same with mitral valve disease in dogs?
2: It's it's similar in that both forms of heart disease are difficult to cure in the way we think about that word. However, we can control the signs of heart disease in both. I would say we are more equipped to do so in the dog than we are in the cat. Um, we have a few more options at our disposal. We have a bit more scientific evidence for what we do in the dog and... Thankfully, the dog um, is a species that tends to be a little bit easier to treat or medicate than the cat. Interesting you put it that way. Is part of the problem.
0: So I had a cat with uh, HCM named Ricky, and I mentioned Ricky just a bit earlier. And if I had forgotten to give Ricky his medication, any time I was near that counter where we kept it, he would jump on my shoulder scream in my ear yeah. give it to me yeah an exceptional cat i i understand but is getting the pill into the cat such a problem that some people say you know i just can't do it
2: yeah unfortunately it is much more challenging to medicate cats than dogs you're right i had two cats that needed medications myself one, it was very easy to hide in a little treat. She never had a problem. The other would go running under the couch if I even got close to the bottle. Dogs, uh, for whatever reason, are a bit easier to medicate, or it seems it's easier for us to hide things when we give that to them. <laughs> okay. Uh, the other breed that I mentioned was Doberman Pinschers. Why? The Dobermans, unfortunately, commonly develop a disease called dilated cardiomyopathy, a disease of the heart muscle where the heart enlarges and the pumping ability is severely compromised. And what about, again, first off, the signs for those dogs that have this? It'll be very similar to what we talked about with mitral valve disease, often signs of coughing, congestion, difficult breathing. A couple things that are a bit unique to the Doberman or the patient with dilated cardiomyopathy is fainting spells, collapse events. And unfortunately, much like the cats we talked about, they are also at risk for sudden death. Mm -hmm. Uh, And treatment? Treatment will consist of both controlling signs of congestion, so decreasing fluid buildup if present, helping to limit the abnormal heart rhythms that increase the risk for sudden death, and then medications that help to improve the heart's ability to pump effectively. For people with heart disease, uh, it's all about diet as well. What about dogs,
0: or for that matter, cats?
2: We do understand that diet certainly plays a role in heart disease. There are some differences, though, between the species. In the humans, our diet is more a function of what we do to our bodies that results in heart disease, whereas in dogs and cats, they are developing these, as we said earlier, for more genetic or predispositions and their diet really is to try and limit the consequences of those heart disease on the body itself Mm -hmm. Uh, such as the lower salt diets that kind of thing right so when fluid is building up in a patient the more salt in that diet the more difficult it will be for the body to get rid of the excess fluid what about the role of obesity we think obesity certainly impacts the quality of life of our dogs And it limits their um, ability to ambulate, get around, feel normal. But we don't see heart disease as a direct result of obesity in dogs or cats. Can it make it more problematic to deal with, though, once they have it? For sure. For sure. If the animal has uh, poor heart function, then obesity is only going to compound or make that more challenging. Mm
0: -hmm. Is there a place that people
2: can go uh, for more information about either heart disease in dogs or cats? Absolutely. I think the most important place you can go is your local veterinarian. So your veterinarian is the best person equipped to both screen for heart disease in your pet and also to answer any questions you might have about the risk.
0: Excellent. Dr. Brian Scanson, Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine. I wish we had better news. There's some optimism Uh, But the more we learn and the more we talk about it and the more I think pet parents are aware, the
2: better off we are. I agree completely. In the 20 years I've been doing this, we have made advances. And so optimism is, I think, what gets us forward. And I look forward to new and better treatments in the future. Okay, All new treatments next time we talk. Thank you.
0: Oh, even Karen Conti would not believe this. A dispute between Jack Daniels and the makers of a squeaky dog toy called... Bad Spaniels has made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Unbelievable. The question for the court involves whether the toy's maker infringed on Jack Daniels' trademark, and to anyone's knowledge, the first time a dog toy has bounced up to the top court. At the Supreme Court, three of the justices have so far been silent, but it's unclear if, whether or not, the Jack Daniels case is on the rocks or whether the makers of bad spaniels, that's the dog toy, had been, well, bad. The words old number seven brand Tennessee sour mash whiskey on the bottle of the real Jack Daniels was replaced on the toy by the old number two on your Tennessee carpet, which I think is kind of funny. Where Jack Daniels says its product is 40%, 40%, 40% alcohol by volume? Did you know that? 40% alcohol? I had no idea. The Bad Spaniels toy says that its product, the squeaky toy, is 43% poo. Justice Samuel Alito expressed skepticism for Jack Daniels' argument. Could any reasonable person think that Jack Daniels had approved use of this trademark He asked at one point, suggesting the toy was an unmistakable parody and therefore legally acceptable. However, Justice Elena Kagan seemed ready to rule against the toy's manufacturer. Maybe I have no sense of humor, she said. This is crazy. A dog toy makes it to the Supreme Court. At the heart of the case apparently is something called the Latham Act, which is the country's major trademark law, We'll see what happened, but I'm, we'll see what happens. But I'm not sure how anyone can be confused with the liquid bottle of Jack Daniels and a squeaky dog toy. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early on WGN.